خوش آمدید جانتان هرناف جانتان هرناف یک جورنالیست هستش در نیویورک و کمیونیکیشنز دایرکتر هستش در مؤسسه جینسا The Jewish Institute for National Security of America یه جورنالیست هستن ایشون و یه سابقه هم خب خیلی نظر جورنالیست خیلی سابقه دارن با ایران و خاورمیانه و اسرائیل ما میخواستیم دعوتشون کنیم به این برنامه Politics 365 که با توجه به حوادث وحشتناک اکتبر 7 نظر ایشون چیه و بررسی ایشون چیه و موضوعی که ایشون درش ریسرچ کردن ما چه بهره برای میتونیم بکنیم ازشون جانتان هرناف ویلکم تو پالیتکس 365 ایفی کود Quickly introduce yourself, uh, your background, and then we'll get into your role with Jinsa. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Sharia. Um, so I'm a British journalist who's been writing about Israel and Iran for the past seven or so years for a number of international publications. And I also serve as Director of Communications at the Jewish Institute for National Security of America, or Jinsa, in Washington, D.C., And uh, Jinsa is a think tank that's based in Washington, D.C., that's focused on advancing U.S. national security interests in the Middle East and has for decades pursued and advocated for a robust uh, U.S.-Israel security relationship in order to achieve that goal. And um, I only started in this role at the end of September, just weeks before Hamas's uh, attacks on October 7th and the start of the war that followed. So it's been a very busy uh, month or so for me and for everyone at Jinsa. But um, right from the start, our experts at Jinsa have been publishing detailed briefings on the developments in Israel and in Gaza and broader regional ramifications as a result of October 7th, including, for example, uh, how it impacts all the progress that has been made had been made up until that point between Israel and, and Saudi Arabia to normalize relations, for example, and also on the risks of, of the conflicts uh, in Israel and Gaza escalating more broadly should groups like Hezbollah get invo involved from the north. Um, our experts at, you know, at, at, at Jinsa in the US and in Israel, many of them are retired Israeli and US generals. So they have a very unique perspective And uh, they've shared some of that expertise uh, in different uh, media outlets, um, including Bloomberg, CNN, Fox News, CNBC, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and more. And uh, Sharia, on a personal note, I've been deeply impacted by the events going on in the region, not just because I've been covering it as a journalist for so long, or because of my personal connections there, but also because I've seen the conflict spill out and transcend borders And now it's rearing its ugly head in, in Europe, the US, Canada, um, in, in very ugly ways, and especially on college campuses, including my uh, alma maters of, of Harvard, Columbia, and Cambridge in, in England. Thank you for sharing that. And I couldn't agree more. There's no room for anti-Semitism uh, in America, but unfortunately, we're always witnessing it at different, uh, most unexpected areas, you would think. Academic institutions would be a place of inclusion and thoughtfulness and and tolerance, but uh, what I've seen is disgusting, um, and I'm really ashamed that you know students uh, have to be uh, party to that and and witness it. 
and have to fear for their safety in this country, in this day and age, whatever, whether you're Palestinian, Jewish, you know, black, white, Iranian, you know, to, to have that experience now in 2023, I, I just feel like we're 50 or 100 years back in time, uh, which was a stain on humanity as far as I'm concerned, uh, what we've witnessed. Uh, of course, everyone's familiar with the Holocaust, but when we say this was the worst attack since the Holocaust, it, it really was. It, it seemed to me it was the Israeli equivalent of 9-11, um, but so close to home, so personal, so barbaric, I think it shocked the world. And that's why I wanted to reach out to as many different voices on both sides, Palestinian, Israeli, you know, nonpartisan, to hear their points of view, hear their personal stories, how they've been impacted, um, and how they kind of see it uh, evolve. Now, before we get into kind of your research and analysis and and, uh, and perspectives, if you could, because I'm, I'm always a structural person, I like to understand structures. So there's APAC, the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee, and there's, I don't know how many other public affairs groups there are uh, that further, you know, uh, 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 Israeli or Jewish uh, public affairs. But you mentioned national security. So there's some overlap between JINSA and APAC, or how do, how do these two groups work together? Uh, thanks for that. And thanks for everything you said before. Um, APAC and JINSA and other uh, non uh, think tanks in Washington, D.C. operate very, you know, separately and differently. I'm sure there is some overlap because they're both focused on Israel. Um, but JINSA, I can't speak for APAC, but JINSA is nonpartisan and it focuses primarily on advancing U.S. national security interests in the Middle East. And it's always striving for, you know, peace in the region. And one of the ways in order to achieve that Jinsa believes is by um, advocating for a stronger, more formalized U.S.-Israel security relationship, and it had been something that Jinsa had been working on uh, for, for years, even before uh, October the seventh. But I think what happened on October the seventh brought this to the fore, and you know, made this highlighted the importance of it. Right. Thank you for explaining that. And now that you mentioned the the, the kind of the the work that Jinsa does. Um, it it leads me to a, a historical question, which has come up in, in pockets of reporting, and I wanted your feedback on it before we get into kind of, again, uh, uh, Jinsa's work. Um, it, I've seen Hamas leaders on Arabic media speak about their lo logic or justification, which was horrendous, doesn't make any sense to me, but it seemed to me, and I wanted to your perspective on it, uh, on these two points I'm going to mention. First, it seemed like they were very callous and cavalier with the lives of the Palestinian people. They felt like this attack was justified in their tormented, demented mind. Uh, and somehow, um, that's just the price of freedom. However many people die, that's just what it is. And they cited all these different points in history where uh, liberty, as they called it, Afghans and different liberty, you know, uh, was uh, came at the price of the loss of innocent lives. So they were very for, uh, forthright about their objective. What they didn't mention, and is what I've seen historically, and I've heard lots of different historians talk about this, is all the different times the Palestinian leadership has turned down 
a two-state solution or some form of accord with Israel. I, I, heard, I counted five, but the, I don't know if that's the right number. Five different times where they could have said, let's call this the two-state, so let's, let's share, let's live together. And somehow the leadership has pushed back on that. I just like to, your perspective and maybe Jinsu's view of those two points, um, however which way you like to address it. Sure. So I'll, I'll touch on the first point that you mentioned um, about uh, the Hamas's callous approach to what happened on October the 7th. I don't think, you know, I know that there, there was an initial um, reference to the Holocaust and I'm very hesitant to ever, you know, invoke the Holocaust. But I think something that's been pointed out is that, you know, when, when the Nazis perpetrated their attacks on the Jewish people, you know, there was there were some attempts to disguise what they were doing. There was denial. Whereas here, you're not only seeing a denial or a celebration of what's going on, but, um, you know, they filmed ex exactly what they were doing throughout uh, the atrocities. They were filming it on GoPros for the world to see. And that's why it's as a journalist, it's even more concerning to see now, you know, the rapid rise of Jew hatred worldwide. Um, because these perpetrators film their horrific attacks quite proudly on their GoPros and live stream their, their massacre on Telegram, Facebook, WhatsApp, and other social media uh, networks. Um, touching on your point about, about peace, I think right now Israel's position is that it acknowledges that what happened on October the 7th was a huge military and intelligence failure. Uh, a failure for the Israeli people, and there will be the Israeli people are going to demand that there'll be a very thorough investigation of how this could have po possibly happened, who's responsible, and how to ensure that this never happens again. It was, you know, one of the biggest pogroms in hu human history, and certainly the first pogrom in human hi in history to have been broadcast and filmed on the internet for the world to see. Uh, in terms of, of, of peace, and, you know, I think the priority now for, for Israel is to ensure that it achieves its own objective of eliminating Hamas, and um, it's it's got to do that in order to reestablish its deterrence, you know, in the region and also to ensure that Israelis, again, feel safe so that Israelis who had fled the south, you know, to move elsewhere, feel comfortable, you know, living, moving back into the south. And I don't think that's ever going to happen as long as Hamas remains in power. And I think it would be premature and unwise to just have that as an objective to just eliminate Hamas because, um you know, what comes afterwards. You can't just eliminate Hamas and leave this, this vacuum there. Um, you've got to ensure, you've got to be thoughtful about what will come after Hamas, that there isn't a vacuum um, that would just leave space for a Hamas 2.0 to, to emerge. So the real question now, Sharia, is how do we make sure that the new rulers of, of, of Gaza help, uh, build a life that's in the interest of their own Palestinian people and that's not hell-bent hell almost exclusively on the destruction of Israel? Right. And, and yeah, sorry. No, no, thank you. I think that's a wise perspective uh, of a t what we're witnessing was a terrible situation. I mean, I think it's a no win situation. You have, uh, I think, the, uh, the Israeli communities around Gaza uh, that not only do they have a right to defend themselves, they have a right to live in peace. And so do the people of Palestine who are seems like they're being held hostage by Hamas uh, all these years. Um, I think everyone feels for the Palestinian people, but uh, you're watching this situation unfold and it's just 
heart-wrenching to watch so many children uh, being used as human shields in uh, in Gaza. But one thing I, I also watch on general news, and I wanted, I guess, since you mentioned Israel's plan in Gaza or future or hope, um, every time Israel launches with the sophisticated weapons against, you know, known targets that Hamas is uh, using under hospitals, next to schools, you know, all the different places that we've we've seen, um, they have to know it will have collateral damage, being so dense a population. And and I and by the way, I don't expect you to answer for the entirety of the Israeli government. Uh, and I think just for the sake of the viewers and listeners, they should know, like any country, there's a massive division within Israel, like any other country. There's a left and a right. There's people that agree with the government. There's a people that strongly disagree with the government. With the government. Uh, so you have all of those diversity. I think Israel is just as diverse in in many aspects as American society is, uh, and divided. Uh, as American society is sometimes. So how, from a security standpoint, how, as you mentioned, some generals are involved in what you're doing. Uh, how do you reconcile the collateral damage of defending yourself? It's an important question to address. And before I do so, I just want to touch on the previous point that you mentioned about Israeli society being so polarized. And it's, it's an important fact, Sharia, because... Uh, it's it's easy to forget that right before October the 7th had happened, you know, Israeli society had never been so polarized. There, were, there was a huge, huge rift between the left and the right, tensions between, you know, ultra-religious ultra, ultra religious and, and secular as well. Um, but all of that, you know, faded and, and disappeared after the attacks of October the 7th. And Israelis became united uh, in their, you know, in supporting one another because every single... Israeli, every single Jewish person, at least who I've spoken to, including myself, has been directly impacted by this. So there will be a time to fix and to focus on all of Israel's domestic issues. Um, but right now, there, there's a focus on, uh, you know, focusing on this threat that 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 is affecting all Israelis in the world. And the, the question of collateral damage is, you know, a very important one. And in an ideal world, there would be a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire on October the 6th before a day before, you know, the attack happened. But, you know, I personally wish that there, there, there would be a ceasefire between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors. But it depends who you're talking about, which neighbor. If you're talking about a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, that's not going to work because it's, Hamas is a terrorist organization that has inflicted one of the most barbaric pogroms in human history, butchering 1400 Israelis in a matter of hours and taking 250 240 people hostage, many of almost all of whom are still held, held hostage to this day, a month later. Um, collateral dam damage is a tragedy. And in an ideal world, which doesn't exist, it wouldn't happen. But unfortunately, you know, especially when you're talking about urban warfare and um, Israel being attacked and being pulled into this war that it didn't want to be in, there will unfortunately be collateral damage on both sides. It's something that from what I've seen and learned, you know, Israel was trying to avoid at all costs. But when, as you know, all the mainstream publications have shown, when Hamas is embedding in very densely populated areas under hospitals, you know, schools, um, there will unfortunately be collateral damage. And there's not an awful lot that the, the IDF can do. It can only be so surgical. And um, 
you know, it's uh, it is a tragedy, but war is tragic, and right. there's not much, unfortunately, that that the IDF can do because it was attacked. Fourteen hundred of its people were slaughtered, and it has to respond in order to protect its people and to reestablish its deterrence, so that something like this will never ever happen again. Right. No, thank you for that, and um, I couldn't agree more. I will say, from my observation, I'm not trying to push an agenda one way or another, but from my observation of the Hamas leadership, you know, the worst thing that's happened to the Palestinian people is not the Jewish state, it's the Hamas leadership who who so callously play with the lives of their people. Um, you know, again, when I heard them say on Arab TVs that, well, that's just the cost of liberty while they're safely, you know, in Qatar or enjoying a, a certain lifestyle. And to be honest, that's dictatorship uh, and autocracies across the Middle East. They have no compassion for their own people. Uh, Iran's regime is one and, and Hamas uh, leadership is one. They, they use their people to their own means. And um, uh, again, looking at history, I'm not trying to take your side or another side, looking at history, when I saw so many different historical points, milestones where you could have had peace, you could have had a two-state solution, you could have had something uh, except this. So uh, I'm definitely going to question some of my Arab guests when I have them on later uh, uh, with the same questions. You know, uh, why would, uh, with empathy and compassion for the Palestinian people, 100%, and the Jewish people uh, in Israel, why, uh, why is the Hamas leadership playing uh, this game with the lives of their innocence because I can't get myself ceasefire is a hundred. I agree with you. I mean, I would like to see a ceasefire, but, but I don't know how you tell a community you can't defend yourself. I don't know how we live in the safety as we do in this country and we can judge other people across the, the planet, but they have to live there. Uh, however, which way you agree with the politics or the settlements or you don't or whatever you're, you know, I have a right to this land. You don't have all that historical stuff that people use. Uh, people have a right to live in peace. Uh, it, Palestinians and uh, Israelis, period. Not, unmolested by their leadership and, and, and you. So, and to, uh, add to, your, to add to your point, if I may, um, it's not, I, d I don't want to give the impression that there's no appetite for a ceasefire or for peace on the Israeli side. I'm, and I'm not speaking on behalf of all Israelis, but you've seen that the Israeli government has said that there will be, they will be amenable to ceasefire as long as, you know, the 240 Israelis who are currently still held hostage are released. But it doesn't, it, it's unfathomable to me to expect a government to, you know, want a ceasefire with, with an organization like Hamas while 240 of its people, including, you know, nine, nine month old baby and, and grandparents are still being held hostage. It, it, you know, it doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Nothing about just makes sense. But Jonathan Haranoff, thank you so much for joining us. Please come back. We like to learn more. Unfortunately, this issue will uh, continue for unfortunately months to come. Uh, the sooner there's peace for both sides, the better. Uh, and I really pray and hope that some form of cease fire will be agreed to, and the hostages will come back soon, and we can work towards. Re reconciling this horrific situation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.